let's see. All right, can y'all hear me? Perfect. Okay, I'm going to pretend like uh, Ken didn't give me the spring break week for a reason, but um, we'll... we'll, we'll. <laughs> well, here we are. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> um, well, we've got just a few short verses today, but there's a ton packed into it, so... Uh, I want to go ahead and dive on in. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read that uh, for us just real quick so that we can kind of understand the context. Um, so it says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Y'all pray with me. Father, thank you for today, um, just for giving us the opportunity to Dive into your word, Lord. I pray that you will, um, you have prepared our hearts and our minds for what it is that you have to say, Lord. And I pray that the the teaching that I do this morning, it's it's not my words, but it's yours. Uh, and I pray that they would be um, glorifying to you, honoring to you, Lord, um, and that we would walk away from here knowing what it what it looks like to 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 live on this side of eternity as we wait for you, um, expectantly wait for you to return. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we, we jump into your word. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we are uh, 10 weeks in. It's crazy. This semester has flown by incredibly fast. But today, what we're going to really kind of talk about is what do we do in the here and now? I, I feel like we've talked about that a lot over the past year, really, is on this side of eternity, how do we live? What, what do we do? What, what should our lives look like as we wait for the return of the Lord? And I think Peter spends a lot of time talking about this. He might not say that explicitly, but over the past few weeks, you see the, the themes that he's talked about in this letter really point towards that. So you've seen something like not of this world, we're to live with the end in mind, submission even, and really talking about this idea of having a future hope. All of this points to the return of Christ. All of this is pointing to, okay, when we are here, as we, as believers, are expecting the Lord to return anytime soon, that's, that's how we're supposed to live, this is how we live now. We live with the end in mind, and we live um, our lives in such a way that it's fueled by the expectation that Christ is going to return. And that future hope of that return is what um, really allows us and fuels us to move forward. So the question I have found myself asking time and time again as I was preparing for this, especially surrounding the idea of this, this future hope or the expectation of the return of Christ is, okay, what do I do with this now? Because here's the thing. I... Really, whether it's true or not, I will read this passage, or I'll read First Peter, and I think, okay, these these guys that Peter's are writing that Peter's writing to are facing persecution. We talked about that, and we see that pretty well established in the first chapter. 
They're being alienated. They're being persecuted. You fill in the blank. Everything around them seems to be going wrong, and they look around like, what do I find hope in? How am I supposed to find hope in this? Look at my life. Now, we've talked about over the past few weeks, they had most likely the wrong idea of what the Christian life looked like, what the Christian life was supposed to mean and be. But I think we do the same thing. I find myself doing the same thing. As I sit here and talk about, you know, expecting the Lord to return and living my life in a way that is honoring to him while I'm here on this side of eternity, while I'm waiting for him to return, I look around the world and I'm like, man, everything seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. Like, what, what is going on? Where is the hope that we have? Like, I, I'm suffering. These people were suffering. What do we do with this? What, like, what, how am I supposed to live? What, what are the things that we're supposed to do? Because nothing looks like it's going well. We'll know that the people that Peter's writing to, the disciples themselves struggled with these same questions. And look at what Jesus says here in John chapter 14, speaking to this very thing. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If, it, if this were not so, but I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. I love how he he ends this verse by saying, or this passage by saying, you know the way to me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And we have to trust, and Peter, I think implied in this letter, is trusting in these very words that, okay, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back to get you. So if we take Jesus at his word, then this is what fuels our everyday lives. This is how we are to live. So Jesus says he's coming back. And here's the thing. If you go back and look at Scripture, you'll see the, the disciples as they were spending time with the Lord. Jesus talks about this. And most of the time when he talks about his return, they get very confused. They have no idea what he's talking about or, or they're, they're just lost in his words. And again, you know, let's just keep this in context. We're talking about Peter. Peter sticks his foot in his mouth a lot in the Gospels. And so you can especially see where Peter would have very confusing thoughts about, okay, what are you talking about when you say you're going to return? What are you talking about when you say you're going to die? You're going to be crucified. And we talked about that last week, remember? Because Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, when talking to Peter. But here's the thing. Through their writings, through the New Testament, we see that even if the disciples themselves, who were physically with Jesus... Even if they did not fully understand his words, they believed, and we can see in their writings that they expected the Lord to return, and they expected that to happen at any moment. That was how they lived. That was how, um, that's what fueled the way that they lived their lives. But these are just a few more examples. This comes from James chapter 5. It says, you too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. And then Romans chapter 13, this is Paul. He says, this is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. 
this is a, another one from Hebrews. The, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was, suffer, or was offered once for all, all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly awaiting him. I love how the Romans, verse, the Romans passage and this passage tie together. Paul says in Romans that the, the return of Christ is closer now than it was when we came to faith, when we came to the Lord. I mean, sitting that or applying that here now, the return of Christ is closer now than when we started this lesson this morning. So we see we're inching closer and closer to the return of the Lord every single moment, and that is how we should live. That should be the motivation behind our actions as we seek to honor the Lord. And then he says here, the author of Hebrews, he will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly awaiting him. And I think that's the key, is you and I on this side of eternity are eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord. We're eagerly awaiting uh, his return, his, his call to bring us home. And we see that Peter spends a ton of time on this. He, he spends a ton of time pointing to the return of Christ and, and implied in this letter is that he fully believed that this was going to happen. He lived his life as if this was going to happen in his lifetime. That's something that he woke up, it seems like, and every day thought, okay, what if the return of the Lord is today? It fueled the way that he lived. And we see that, okay, in verse 7. The very first thing he says is the end of all things is at hand. So this, this just goes along with everything he's talked about in this letter, and it goes along with everything that he said so far, especially when it comes to the idea of living with the end in mind. So what he's going to do today is he's going to give us a few different things, whether it's um, self-control, sober-mindedness, loving one another, hospitality, all of these things. He's going to give us examples of here is how you live on this earth while we wait for the return of Christ. Here is what we do. Here are the actions that you can perform. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but... He hinges all of this on the return of Christ. He says, we live this way because Christ is coming back. And so that is why we live the way and such we do. And so kind of giving you the, this mindset of especially the first century believers, I found this uh, quote from one of the commentaries that I read. It says, Christ's return was always near to the feelings and the consciousness of the first believers, speaking to the disciples or those in the first century. It says, it was the great consummation on which the strongest desires of their souls were fixed, to which their thoughts and hopes were habitually turned. So it's basically saying, man, everything that they did when it came to honoring the Lord, when it came to bringing others to know Christ, they did because they were thinking, okay, the return of Christ is coming. The end of all things is at hand. The, the, the return of Christ is near. So let's live our lives in such a way that's honoring to him. And because of that, more and more people will come to know him. You see, the return of Christ informed their very way of living, and the same thing should be true of us. And so what Peter does is basically spells this out practically. So what does this look like practically? He's going to spend the rest of this passage talking about. So continuing in, in verse 7, Remember, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So he spends time talking about being self-controlled, sober-minded, talks about loving, and he talks about showing hospitality. Now, before jumping into these things, we have to remember, right, he says, therefore, and when talking about studying Scripture, whenever you see the word therefore, we've talked about this a little bit already this semester, is whenever you see the word therefore, ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? And so he talks about, okay, the end of all things is at hand, therefore do this. So the return of Christ is coming, it's near, therefore live your life this way. This is what you should be doing. This is how our lives should look. And then he goes and spells out self-controlled, sober-minded, loving one another in hospitality. Let's break these down. Let's, let's dive into these a little deeper. So when he talks about being self-controlled and sober-minded, simply put, Peter is saying, have a clear mind. Now I know I'm, you're, you're probably sitting there thinking like, Mitchell, you, you're in seminary and the basic thing you're coming up here with is Peter says, think clearly. But that's literally what he's saying. He says, don't be distracted by your current circumstances. I think it's so, and I'm going to put myself in this boat. I do this so often. It is so easy to be distracted by what's going on in my life and letting those things become more of a priority, letting those things become way more important than really following after the will of God. But what Peter is saying is we have got to keep our focus on the imminent return of the Lord, the imminent return of Christ. And we see the yearnings for this. We see the callings for this all throughout the New Testament. So Luke chapter 21, it says, stay awake at all times or be alert, be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that, you're going, that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So have a clear mind, be alert, um, have self-control. Colossians chapter 3 Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So this idea of setting our minds on, on heavenly things, not on earthly things, not being distracted by whatever is going on in our life, the worldly circumstances that we're in, Peter is saying we've got to keep our focus on the return of the Lord. But see, these verses remind us of what Peter's been saying all along. We have got to live with the end in mind, and we can't let our worldly circumstances cloud, the, cloud our minds and, and really push out the priority that we should be giving to living our lives in such a way that are honoring to the Lord and living our lives in such a way that are constantly thinking about the return of Christ. Now, when you read something like this and you read this passage, it seems very practical, but we've got to ask, why is this so important? And after each of these uh, characteristics that Peter goes through today, he will usually say something like, okay, here's why you should do this. And a lot of times they're kind of confusing, but they make a ton of sense once you dive into them. So when it comes to being self-controlled and sober-minded, what does Peter say? He says, so be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. Now, the first time I read that, I was like, what? Like, Peter, what are you, like, what are you talking about? What does that even mean? Well, how, how does being self-controlled and sober-minded, what does that have to do with our prayer life? But he, he, he shows us that 
not thinking clearly or not having a sober mind, not being self-controlled would negatively impact the people he's writing, negatively impact their prayer lives. And the same thing is true for you and I. Because failure to think clearly would result in prayer lives that are only focused on our present worldly desires, only focused on our circumstances rather than that of the will of God. We become way more focused on ourselves than we do the Lord. Our prayers become more about us than they do about honoring God. This is why Paul says, set your minds on things that are above. Set your mind on things that are from heaven. That's what we should look to. That's where our minds should be. And the same thing is true for our prayer life. So not only is this true for our actions, not only is this true for the way we live, but in our prayers, the same thing should be true. So speaking about the return of Christ and eagerly awaiting that, that should be on on our minds when we pray. Now, if we are not self-controlled, if we don't have a sober mind, the opposite is true here. So when we are self-controlled, when we have sober mind, our prayer life, as we see Peter pulling the focus here onto prayer, our prayer life becomes more about the will of God than our will. I fully believe that uh, Peter had Jesus in mind when he was writing this because Peter had the example of Christ in this. Now remember, everything that Peter's talked about up to this point, and we're four chapters in, everything that he's mentioned when it comes to a characteristic or, or a way that we should live, he is always pointing back to Christ. And I think that the same thing is true here because Peter was present when Jesus talks about how to pray. The example that Jesus gives us, this is in Matthew chapter 6. The, we see this is the passage of the Lord's Prayer. But look at what he says right before he goes into the Lord's Prayer. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them or ask him. So what we see here is really this before he gets into the Lord's Prayer, is an example of what our prayer lives look like if we don't have a sober mind, if we're not self-controlled. What we're doing is we're just throwing up empty words, making our prayers sound very insightful, and we're doing it for ourselves. We're praying for the attention that it gives us. We're praying for ourselves more than we are for honoring the Lord. And guys, I'm going to be honest over the years, this is something that I've struggled with. I, when I get up here sometimes and I start off with prayer or end in prayer, I would be lying to you guys if I didn't admit that, man, sometimes I sit here and think, I'm like, gosh, I've got to make sure this prayer sounds super good so these guys think that I'm like this great pastor, this great teacher, everything. But we see that, man, that is not, how, that is not what our prayer life should look like publicly or privately. Because all that's focused on is myself rather than the Lord and honoring God. Because Jesus goes on to say, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we see that he gives us two contrasting ways to pray here. And I think this pairs perfectly with what Peter's talking about. Praying out of selfishness, where we're praying for our own present desires, we're praying for ourselves, our will, rather than God's will, or praying with a future-minded mentality. I mean, look at the first thing that Jesus says. The first thing he prays about 
is honoring the Lord's name. And then God's will be done rather than our will. Now, don't hear me say, I want to make sure I make this point. I am not saying that we can't pray about things that are going on in our life, things that are struggles of ours. That's not what I'm saying at all. The Lord wants us to bring to him our struggles, our pains, the sufferings that we have in this life. But what I'm speaking to here is when we become more concerned about our will and the way that we want to live our life, rather than following after the will of God, rather than praying to honor the Lord and praying to follow his will. And so I asked the question, do we pray for our will more often, or do we pray for God's will to be done? Because, I mean, I think it's very easy to get caught in the comfortability of the life that we have, and I think it's, it's easy to get caught up in ourselves. I mean, we're all naturally selfish, right? So it's very, very simple and very easy, and at least for me, it's, it becomes very quick for me to jump to praying for what I think my will should be, what I think should happen, rather than honoring the Lord. And I, my prayers become more about me than they do about honoring the Lord. So having a clear and a sober mind allows you to focus on the reality of the future hope that we have in Christ. Having your mind set on things above, having your mind set on the imminent return of the Lord allows you to to look around and really make sense of the chaos that's going on in this world. Like I said earlier, we look around and we think, man, there is just no hope for anything. But you and I have a hope, and that is in Christ. And what allows us to see that hope and to believe in that hope is this idea of having a clear and sober mind so that we have these prayer lives, so that we have this idea of honoring the Lord and focusing our attention on his imminent return. See, none of this is possible unless we have self-control, unless we have sober minds, as Peter talks about. So after talking about uh, our prayer lives, after talking about being self-controlled and sober-minded, he jumps to loving. In verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love is something that Peter has talked about so many times in this book. I think this is my fourth time to teach this semester, and every single time I've gotten up to talk, Peter in this letter, has talked about love. I think every lesson I've taught has had something to do with loving our brother and sister in Christ, loving our enemies, loving those around us. And again, he focuses on that. Now remember, he's speaking to the community of believers as a whole. He's writing to these churches in modern-day Turkey. And he's really honing in on the fact that we should show love to one another. First Peter chapter 1, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. First Peter chapter 3, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So we see Peter focusing on this over and over and over again. And obviously, that means it's very important. If one of the disciples is writing about something time and time and time again, we should take notice. We should focus on why is he saying this. The word that Peter uses for love here goes so much deeper than any other word that he's used for love previously. All throughout, or most of 1 Peter, Peter talks about 
love in terms of philo or philos. It's this idea of brotherly love. I said a few weeks ago, that's where we get the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, that kind of term. Now, for us, in our English translations, we just see the word love. Now, what we don't see is there are a bunch of different words actually used in the Greek to describe love, and these different types of love are uh, or these, there's different words used for different types of love. Here, in this, in this verse, in chapter 4, Peter uses the word agape. Now, what's important to understand here is agape love is this divine love. Now, that's the key here. It, it, it's a divine love. It's characterized by sacrifice and pursuit of another person's good. But if you don't remember anything about agape love, remember this. It's, it's a divine love. This is a love that is shown to you and I by the Father. This is not the, the brotherly love or, or romance that we see in other parts of Scripture. This is something that is, goes a million times deeper than that. It's the love that was shown to you and I, the love that we don't deserve. But it goes so much deeper than anything that Peter's talked about to this point. So when he says, love one another earnestly, he's not just talking about brotherly love. He's saying, hey, the love that was shown to you by the Father Show that love to others. This is the love that God has for us. And we see this love used, this, this term agape, we see it used all throughout Scripture. But I just want to point out a few examples because understanding that this is a divine love, understanding that really this is a love that's unattainable by you and me unless we have been changed by the gospel, unless our lives have been made new by the Lord, Understanding what this love is makes these verses sound so much heavier, makes, gives them so much more weight. John chapter 13, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He uses agape love here. People will know that you are followers of Christ if you are showing the, this divine love that's been shown to you, if you're showing that others. That's how people will know you are following the Lord. And then probably the most famous example is John 3.16. This is the most quoted verse of all time. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Guys, I, I, I grew up in church. I, I'm lucky enough to have uh, two amazing parents that prioritized that in my life. I probably had this verse memorized by the time I was like five or six. This week, studying for this passage, I have never been struck by how amazing this verse is when you take into context the word for love used here. It just adds so much more weight to the idea that God loves the world. God loves his children. When we talk about the word for love being agape here, this divine love, it goes so much further than what we typically think of for love. But when he says, for God so loved the world, God is showing that divine love. And the, the way that we see that divine love poured out, the way that we've seen that divine love shown is that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. I mean, it just adds so much more weight to this verse. And this is the love that Peter is saying, this is, how you should, this is the love you should show to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does this love look like practically? It's, a, it's you know, Plenty to say we should love like this, but what are, what are we supposed to do with this? What does this look like? 
Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, um, this is a passage that most likely you've read or heard if you've been to a wedding ever. So this is typically is always read. I've performed a couple of weddings, and I'll be honest, I've read this passage at every wedding that I've performed. But in this passage, the word love is used a million times. And every time it's used, the word agape is there. That, so this informs that passage as well. And I'm, I've got the characteristics listed here, but I want to just read through this passage. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, yes, this is a great passage to read during weddings. But man, again, as I was preparing for this sermon, as I was preparing for this, I I was just struck by how much more weight is added to all of these passages when you take into the context that agape love is used. It's this divine love that really, without the Holy Spirit, without the Lord, without our lives being transformed by the gospel, you and I can't show. It's this love that we see in 1 John 4 where we are, we are loved and therefore we must show that love to others. We have been shown a love that we don't deserve. And now, you and I get the privilege, we get the honor to love those around us with this type of love. Matthew chapter 5, this is something that we've Really, if you've come on Sundays in our Upside Down series, we've talked about this. I mean, this verse in of itself is something that is upside down, as the series talks about. But it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So like I said, that the verse in of itself just turns everything on its head. But then now add the, the added weight of, the word for love here is agape love. So not only are we supposed to just love our enemies, show them kindness, show them um, compassion, show them sympathy, show them all these things. Jesus is saying the divine love that has been shown to you, love your enemies with that love. Love your brothers and sisters with that love. Show this love while you are waiting for me to come back, while you're waiting for me to return. Keeping in mind, guys, that, man, this love is impossible without the Holy Spirit. This love is impossible without our lives having been transformed by the gospel. This is the type of love that we should have for one another. Now, like I said, after each of these characteristics, Peter is going to talk about, this is why you should do this. And for love, he says, it covers a multitude of sins. And again, First time I read this, I'm like, Peter, what in the world are you talking about? That makes no sense. Is, was Christ's sacrifice on the cross not enough? What, do I have to have something else to cover my sins? But he says love is, uh, covers a multitude of sins. And at the most basic level, what Peter is saying is to cover sin is to forgive it. So when he says that love covers a multitude of sins, what he's saying is when you love in this way, you are forgiving people who have sinned against you, but also at the same time, loving in this way covers the sins of not others, or not only others, but of yourself as well. 
when we sin against others, we are shown this love. When others sin against us and we show them that love, we are covering a multitude of sins. And the best example of this is Jesus on the cross. Now, go back to John 3.16. Go, this love that we see from Christ on the cross is this agape love. It's this divine love, and this is the best example. Again, Peter is pointing to Christ when he says, when it comes to any of these things, the best example is Jesus. So that's where we should go to. That's who we should run to when it comes to, to figuring out what it looks like to live like this in the here and now. Now, in this, in this verse, and specifically in verse 8, Peter is really quoting Proverbs chapter 10 and Proverbs chapter 17. He's kind of combining both of them. They kind of have the same idea. I only mentioned Proverbs 10 here, but it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So we see that the same idea was true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, and the same thing is true today, that love, this agape love, this divine love covers all multitude of sins. You and I, when we, when we have been shown this love, when we have been made new through the love of Christ, guys, then we are to show that to other people. We have the opportunity to forgive sins, not hold on to, to sins and hold grudges, but to forgive and cover a multitude of sins. But I think the goal here is unity. When it comes to this love, when it comes to being self-controlled and sober-minded, specifically with our prayers, when it comes to us, we'll see hospitality. And then later on, when it comes to our spiritual gifts, Peter, as he's writing to the community as a whole, when he's writing to all of these churches, I think he wants to talk about this because he wants them to be unified. He wants them to, to in unison, love in this way. The body of Christ should love in this way. And why? Because... It's honoring to the Lord. It brings glory to the Lord. And man, what an, an honor it is, what a privilege it is to be that example as we wait for the return of the Lord. So from, from love, he jumps into hospitality. In verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He gets very practical again. Peter gets incredibly practical. He says, be hospitable. Just, just be hospitable. Open up your home. Be a kind and caring person. But consider the context in which he's writing. Not only are the people that he's writing to facing persecution, but at the same time, he's just mentioned in a previous passage slaves who are uh, submitting to masters who might not be the best people or these women who are married to unbelieving husbands. He's saying, how are you going to show hospitality to them? The examples that I've given, what does it look like to show hospitality to them? Are you going to open up your home? Are you going to provide for their needs? Will you do that? I think tied in with this idea of hospitality is the idea of that divine love that we just finished talking about. But he says, be hospitable and, and, and show this divine love in this way. But this isn't something that just Peter talks about. Again, Peter and Paul mention a lot of the same things. Paul here is speaking to when it comes to serving um, the saints, other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And then the author of Hebrews takes that a step further and says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. 
that verse made me just have to sit back and just contemplate everything. Because I, I read that and I got incredibly convicted. Because I kind of took it as, okay, showing hospitality, you might not know that you are showing hospitality to angels, but how often have I not shown hospitality and that been the case? I mean, think about how convicting that is. That, that, that just flips everything on its head. But you and I are to show hospitality. This is the, the main point that we see from these writers in the New Testament. It's the main point from Peter. Show hospitality, and this is a way to show that divine love. Now, being hospitable can be difficult. It, it doesn't come naturally to everyone. This is something that my incredible wife is amazing at. She is one of the most hospitable people that I know. The same cannot be said of me. I, you know, my idea of a perfect weekend is sitting at home, not talking to anybody, and just staying on my couch and doing nothing, like watching sports or something like that. That sounds amazing. Whereas my wife is like, let's have people over for dinner, let's have game nights, let's go to dinner with people, let's go get lunch with it. She is incredible at this. For me, I sit there and think, I'm like, man, being hospitable takes time, it takes sacrifice, it takes effort. These are things that a lot of times in my selfishness, I don't want to give up. I don't want to give up my time. I value my time too much to do this, which is wrong. And I've, in studying this passage, have very much so been convicted of and realized. But this is something that, like I said again and again, is a way to show that divine love, but it's something that we're called to do, and it's showing the example of Christ as we're waiting for him to return. Let me give you guys a specific example of this in, in my life. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in the process of changing jobs, and when I did that, there came a time where my wife and I really, we had to move, and we didn't know where we were going to live, and for a while, we were very concerned that I, we were going to have to live in a hotel for a season while we tried to figure out what, what our living was going to look like. We were, you know, kind of scared because I was like, okay, I've got two dogs. No hotel is going to take me. What are, I don't want to board my dogs because that's going to be way expensive. So what do we do? And we got really nervous. And we, to be honest with you all, I had no idea what was going to happen. And a family in the church reached out to us and said, hey, we've heard about what's going on. You all come live with us. And I can remember just thinking to myself, like, man, I'm going to be such a burden to them. But out of their love for the Lord, they took us in for a number of weeks. And not to mention, I said, I had two dogs, and they're not small dogs. I have two labs. So they're big dogs. They're going to make a mess. They're going to be crazy. And these people just offered us their guest bedroom. They had two kids, two little kids. And so I, I knew, I was like, man, this is not convenient for them. But I cannot tell you the love that my wife and I felt from them, the, the love that we, we were shown, the hospitality that we were shown. I mean, in that moment, I got to sit here, and specifically thinking through this passage, I was like, man, I got to see the love of the Lord from these people. And it was an amazing feeling. And then turning that around and saying, man, we get to show that love and that hospitality to those around us. What a privilege that is. What an honor it is that we get to show the gospel to those around us in these actions. But then taking it a step further, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, these are the passages that we go to when it comes to the qualifications for elders and deacons in our churches. 
This is a list of things that elders and deacons should have. And look at the, the things that are listed here by Paul in 1 Timothy. He says they must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And we see again in, in Titus chapter 1, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but should be hospitable, a lover of good, do good. There's the idea of doing good again, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So we see, man, this is not just something that Peter pulls out of thin air. He says, man, when it comes to the leaders in the church, when it comes to you and I in our everyday lives as we are waiting for the return of the Lord, this is what our lives should look like. We should be hospitable. We should show hospitality, and we should do so without grumbling. That's the important part to remember is we should do this without being frustrated by it, being upset by it, because in being hospitable, we are getting to take part in a visible, visual representation of the gospel. Being hospitable is really seeing people as worth more than whatever they can do for you. I mean, for my example, I knew that I was going to be a hindrance to this family. I knew my dogs were going to be crazy, probably tear some things up. I knew that it was going to be hard to to live with, they were, it was going to be hard for them to have us there because we were, they had little kids and we were bringing in our whole mess. But it's seeing people as worth more than what they can do for you. So after he talks about all of these things, so being self-controlled, being sober-minded, um, loving earnestly, and then being hospitable, he jumps in to talk about spiritual gifts. And really, everything that he said up to this point can be tied into this. But he says, as each has received a gift, remember he's talking to all of these churches, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Every believer, everybody who has been made new by the power of the gospel has been given a gift to further the kingdom. And exercising these gifts shows God's grace to the world. I mean, I think that's something that we too often confuse. Yes, God's grace has been shown to me in the forgiveness of my sins, but we see in this passage here that God can show his grace in a various different ways. And one of those ways is by using your gifts to, to serve one another. Exercising our gifts is showing God's grace to the world. Like I said, in 1 Peter 10, it says, be good stewards of God's varied grace when it comes to sharing, and really in reference to using your gifts to serve one another. But he says it's, it's varied grace. So there are multiple ways for God's grace to be shown, and this is one of them. You see, God, uh, our spiritual gifts, when we use them, it's a manifestation of God's grace, and his grace is shown in many ways. But guys, what an honor, what a privilege it is that you and I get to be the stewards of God's grace. God has chosen us to be the people that he is going to love the world through, to be the people that he has given gifts to, to show his grace to the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this speaks to this idea of, of God's varied grace, the, the variety of gifts. It says, oh, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. See, Peter is saying that in these gifts that we have been given by the Lord, God is present. He's present in and through them when we, when we use our spiritual gifts to serve one another. Our gifts are a manifestation of God's variegated grace. So if you think about it, if you take a step further, you and I having these gifts when we don't use them to serve one another, when we don't use them to serve and honor the Lord, we're actually denying somebody God's grace, which is contrary to everything that we've talked about to this point. We all, we all have gifts. This isn't something that you know, some of us have and some of us don't. If you are in Christ, you have a spiritual gift to further the kingdom. You have a spiritual gift to honor the Lord and to show God's grace to the world. We're called to serve with these gifts. Man, talk about showing divine love. Talk about being hospitable and self-controlled and sober-minded. Excuse me. I want to close with this. I think there's, there's a passage in Matthew chapter 25 where... Jesus is talking about um, the end times and specifically what's going to happen during the tribulation. And he says this. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then... The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the kingdom that we're talking about when when Christ returns to bring us home. He's prepared this place. We saw this in John 14 earlier. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And then when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it. So you and I have the opportunity, I mean, thinking through just in one of the worst times during the tribulation, believers are going to be showing this love to the least of these, and the same thing is true for us right now. As we are waiting for the return of Christ, we have the opportunity, we have the, the, the privilege, the honor to show all of these things, whether it's self-control, sober-mindedness, love, hospitality, using our spiritual gifts to serve one another. We get to do so to show the grace of the Lord and show others the amazing life that they can have through Christ. So here are your questions for this week. First one says, knowing God is present when we use our spiritual gifts, how does that change the way we view them? They're no longer just these one-off things. God is present. God is there when we use our spiritual gifts. How does that change the way we view them? Second, what are some simple ways to show agape love and hospitality? I feel like this is something that is, for whatever reason, just so difficult today. So let's get very practical. 
What are some easy and simple ways to do that when we walk out of this room today? And then lastly, could it be that the strength of our private prayer life is an indication of our lack of self-control and sober-mindedness? Y'all pray with me. Father, thank you for today and for this morning. Lord, I just I thank you for giving us First Peter and the, specifically this passage, Lord. Uh, thank you for just the conviction that's come with it for me. Um, Lord, I pray that you would use this passage to change the hearts of everybody in this room, including myself. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here today seeking to apply these truths in our life. Father, I pray that you would be with us during our, our table time today and that the discussion would be centered completely around you, Lord, and we would grow closer and closer to you each and every day. I pray all this in your name. Amen.